Good morning, everybody. Good morning. If you want to grab a seat, we are going to dive into God's Word. It should be an exciting ride this morning, if you heard the text read. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. I would like to pray for the children's ministry workers upstairs and pray for our time in the Word before we go break bread and celebrate communion. We thank you, Father, for that awesome sentence we just sang, my debt is paid, Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you that you, we have been reconciled through the blood of the cross into your family, Lord. And neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we want to experience your love today. And one of the ways that you pour out your love is you inform us in our heads and then you change our hearts um, so that we are more and more renewed into the image of our Savior. So, Father, I ask that you would take this preparation, uh, take most of all the Word of God, and, and, and work through me in this moment. Delete anything you don't want me to say, and then put the pedal to the metal, anything you want me to say that I even thought of. And I pray that your Spirit would not only empower me to speak what you want to be said, but it will empower hearts to be softened, and ears to be um, unstopped, and eyes to be opened. Father, we want, um, we want to be used by you to reach this community, and we need to be changed so that we can be, by your grace, change makers. So do all of that. Do more than we can even anticipate or expect. Um, in these moments together, I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, what if I stood up here and I said, God says you can go ahead and just sin your heart out all you want. I mean, Amos 4.4, God says multiply your transgressions. Or what if I said this, if you really want to be right with God, go sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor. I mean, that's what Jesus said in Luke 18 and verse 22. Or what if I said, <clears throat> men, if you really want to be right with God, not only should you get circumcised, as Paul says in Galatians 5, you should go the whole way. Now, I have a funny feeling you would walk out of here. And in walking out of here, you would say, bro, you, you, there's something called context. We must understand the Bible in context, right? And yet people come to our text, verse 26, where Paul says, you know, some bring a hymn, some bring a, an interpretation, uh, you know, some bring um, a revelation. And let's say, you know, the problem with church today is, you know, there's too much order. And they go to verse 26 to support that assertion. Or some go down to, what verse is it? Verse 30, I know it caught your attention, 33, 34, where it says, the woman she keeps silent in churches, 
And they say, you know, there's really, you know women really shouldn't do much in the church. Um, so, ladies, when you walk in those doors, zip it up. Or at least when the opening prayer is offered, we don't want to hear pip or squeak out of you. Context is king, right? And so we're going to dial into the context of this passage of Scripture. The backdrop you remember was Corinthian chaos. If you were to try and describe what the context was, it was Corinthian chaos. Do you remember back in chapter 11, the rich were despising the poor and the way they were taking communion and chowing down ahead of people with all their resources? We learned also in 1 Corinthians 11 that some were even getting drunk at communion. That takes a lot of trips down the aisle to make that happen. We learn later in chapter 12 that some of the wives were dishonoring their husbands as the church gathered. We learned also that both men and women were blending or blurring lines of distinction that God has designed among genders, the two of them. We learn later on that people were just sudden outbursts of tongues without even interpretation. And then we learned that people were prophesying one on top of the other. It was, so, it was like one of those school board meetings. It was absolute chaos. And that was not a good look for God, was it? That was not a good look for the God that they were supposedly, supposedly gathering to reflect and to worship. And that's why he says in verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Verse 40, but all things should be done decently, or the word is often translated properly and in order. So here's the big idea for today. Paul is going to close out these several chapters on gathered worship and spiritual gifts and all of that. He's going to close it out with this final instruction to the church of proper worship. Proper worship is driven, according to this text of sacred scripture, by three crystal clear principles. They should be on the outlines if you had got one on the way in. Number one, what we're going to see in the text, y'all with me? It's going to get a little weighty, just so you know, okay? Number one, there is the principle of edification. Is that word familiar? Yeah, the last time we were in this text, two weeks ago, Paul spends basically all of the front end of chapter 4 talking about the gifts are for the upbuilding or for the edification of the saints, of each other. But in verse 26, he brings it up again. He emphasizes it again because it's so important. So I'm going to take a few more minutes to re-emphasize what he is saying, and, and to, do, to share some things that he didn't have time to get to the last time. I want you to drop your eyes. We'll come back to the front end of verse 26, but I want to drop your eyes. I want you to drop your eyes to the latter part of verse 26. There's one sentence, and what does that sentence say? It's an all-encompassing command. Let all things be done for building up. Pretty clear statement. Now, the sad reality is most people come to church to get rather than to give. Most people come to church to consume 
rather than to distribute. And as a result, people sit in evaluation on church or a church service almost like Siskel and Ebert used to do with movies. Are they still movie uh, critics? And, and they, it's long gone. That's, yeah, when I was a kid. That's what they did, and they would evaluate movies. They would give you, you know, five stars, four stars, or whatever the rating system was. And people do that with church, right? They'll say, you know, the, the, uh, the worship music, it was kind of slow. So-and-so was off-key. Um, it wasn't my taste, on and on, or, or about sermons. The sermon, man, that was just flat. That was boring. There weren't many jokes in that. Um, it was long. It was short. We've had that criticism one time here at the church, and yes, it was not me. They were criticizing, okay? It was somebody else. But I, I was just uh, preaching up north at Camp Barakel. Preached Friday night. Father-daughter retreat was awesome. Had a blast with Emma. Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, and Sunday morning. And right before I was going to preach in the closing service, a guy comes up to me and he says, um, how far a drive is it from Howell to Detroit? And, which was a weird question for me, like you would know as well as I would. Um, but I said, you know, well, why do you ask? He said, well, you know, um, your preaching has just really, really blessed me. It just really strengthened me. Thank you so much. And, you know, I've been at my church 12 years, and, uh, you know, I just feel like I can't get any more from the pastor, um, and so I'm looking for a new church. And I was not flattered, and the more I think about it, I wasn't even less flattered. I was just another voice. I was just a new voice, right? Like, unless his pastor's not preaching from the Bible, that's a whole other thing, he was coming as a consumer, Right? And people do that with all kinds of stuff. They come, they're, they're consumers when it comes to kids' ministry. Well, you have this, but you don't have that. Or the consumer is about, you know, no, no one really came to talk to me. Now, to be sure, there's things we ought to do when we gather as a church, right? And we ought to do the best that we can, right? And most of all, we ought to be robustly and thoroughly and relentlessly biblical, but I would just say to you, that consumer mindset causes people, correct me if I'm wrong, do it publicly, to be passive when they come. Passive listeners, eh, I'm just going to dial out. Passive servers, where I feel like I want to. Passive singers. Passive, 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 passive greedy. Engaging where they want to instead of being active participants. People say, I didn't really get anything out of that service. Yeah, because you didn't give anything. Like going to the gym. Did you get anything out of the gym? I mean, there was free weights over there and some apparatuses over there and some mats over there and treadmill and elliptical. And you didn't actually use any of the equipment, of course you didn't get anything out of the gym experience. You didn't do anything. What I'm trying to say is this. The principle of edification is predicated on this. We got to come to be, we got to be, be active participants, right? We got to come not to, to get and to evaluate like we're Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> we need to come to give. And oh, by the way, highlight this, oh, by the way, we come first and foremost, not even to give to each other, but to give to God. To give him the glory that is due his name. Psalm 29 verse 2 says, ascribe or give to the Lord the glory that is due his name. That's a pretty active thing. 
Psalm 34, the psalmist says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Verse 3, let us magnify his name together. Let us exalt him. Bless, magnify, boast, praise. And, and, and some reason people say, well, I, I, I'm not really tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Verse 8 of Psalm 34, while we're there, maybe that would happen if you magnified him. Maybe that would happen if you blessed him, if you boasted him, if you extolled him, and all of that. If we could live stream heaven right now, you know what you'd see on that flickering screen? A slain lamb standing, being worshipped all the time by everything, everywhere. And we right here and now, in the greedy here and now, right here at 2701, 2701 Joy Road, when we gather, we get to enter into that worship that's going on now. And when that becomes the ultimate priority of why I need to come together with my brothers and sisters on the Lord's Day, you will then want others to join in on that too. And when you want others to join in on that too, the switch will be flipped. And it won't be about being passive or how can I use the gifts that I think that I can have. Rather, it will be how can I serve others to help them to worship the slain lamb standing? And that, I think, is what drives the principle of edification. It's first vertical. It's first giving God glory, and then we give service to others with our gifts. And let me give you, let's take up one example of building others up when you come here. Let's take you one opportunity that all of us have, all of us have, and that is fellowship. Fellowship. What if everybody came on a Lord's Day with this commitment strategically prayed into the fabric of their soul all week and the night before and that morning? I am going to build up somebody today. I'm going to encourage somebody today. I'm going to console somebody today. Does that remind you of a verse from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, where he talks about that's what our gifts are for? You may have read every few weeks on Friday or Saturday, I'll send out just an email. Probably half the people, according to the stats, open that email up. But just some preparation of how we can come together as active participants on the Lord's Day. And that would start this thing of fellowship of actually taking the initiative of getting out of the seat or at the end of the service walking over to somebody, right? Man, you could do that. And then taking that initiative, actually then chit-chatting with them about, I don't know, anything and everything. And all, all that is really good, but, but it's not fellowship, actually, if it just stops there, by the way. Because according to chapter 1 and verse 9, fellowship is this. God is faithful, it says, to whom, who, by whom you were called into the fellowship, there's the word, of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, for fellowship to really be something that would upbuild, edify, and pour into somebody, it has to be Jesus-centered. At some point, it's got to be word-centered, according to 1 Corinthians 1, 9, and many, many other passages. Now, the world, <laughs> the world wants Christians to keep Christians from doing Christian things. Did you know that? 
The world wants to keep Christians from doing Christian things. And often one of the tactics of the world to keep us from doing Christian things is the tactic of stereotyping, right? So somebody could be stereotyped, you know, the, the stereotypical Bible thumper, right? Spouting scripture, angry, on the street corner or whatever. And, and, and who wants to be that guy, right? I don't want to be that guy. And so as a result... We never really share Scripture with another believer, let alone an unbeliever. Now, here's a news bulletin. You and I don't have anything better to say than God. Right? Are you telling me that I should just be a walking concordance? I should just be always... Listen... Once you get a million miles close to that, we'll let you know. But I don't think anybody is, right? Obviously, we engage in a number of things. But did you get the point here? So if we want to come and upbuild and console and encourage, maybe we need to get more in the book and be willing to encourage people. Not Maybe not with a verse, but a scriptural truth, a, a promise. And when someone here tries to do that to you, however awkward it might be, why don't you just thank him for him? Right? Thank you for trying to remind me of God and who I am in him and who he is. Now, there's other ways that people edify. Right now, upstairs, you got the Lees, you got the Glandons, you got Jenea. What are they trying to do? They're trying to edify some of the most precious people in our lives, our children, right? Leo tries to, to build up an atmosphere of edification by, by taking care of the facilities behind the scenes. You got people up in the AV booth who do this week to week, and people who lead in music and security and all the rest. My point is this, and I'm just going to wrap up this first point. Proper worship begins with the priority of edification. First giving God his glory, and then wanting people to give God glory and helping them do that by serving them with your gifts. And when that happens, the church is built up, and lost people at the same stroke are evangelized. Principle number one edification. Principle number two, the principle of order. This is that first paragraph, verses 26 through 40. We see in verse 40, by the way, verse 26 through 33, my bad, but we do see in verse 40, all things should be done decently or properly and in order. Now, verse 26, as I reference by way of introduction, is often taken out of context by groups within Christianity who latch onto this particular verse as if it's the only verse that has anything to say about gathered worship. Where Paul says, what, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has and a list a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. And what people will say from this one verse is, listen, if you really, really want to... Well, I'll get to there in just a second. Um, people come to this verse, and they say, um, the problem with our worship services is, there, you know, there isn't just people giving a hymn, giving an interpretation, giving them a tongue. And if, if it did that, it would, it would be really great. And so um, charismatic, I remember a, a, a big C charismatic guy 
uh, that I was friends with, good friends with, at a factory I worked at, right out of the Marine Corps, I'd just become a Christian. And I would ask him on Monday, hey, how, how was your service? And he would say, you know, man, it was so awesome. The worship was so awesome. By that he meant worship music was so awesome that um, we didn't even get to the sermon. Now, listen, that could happen, so let's be open for that, right? Like, let's not box that out. But hearing week after week after week, I wonder if anybody really got built up. And Fred, in fact, I had another friend. He had just become a Christian. Where he, he was illiterate. We're, we're learning to read uh, by using the Bible during break time. And he let me in on some things in his life. And he said, yeah, my wife and I go to this really super charismatic church, and it's really emotionally high, uh, but I walk out of there, and it's like just coming down off a high. He said, I feel like i got the same monkey in my back. I have not been built up and equipped for life. The Quakers take this verse. You guys know anything about the Quakers? So they're a group that they would they would just go into what they call a meeting house, and they will sit still, and if someone gets a tongue or a revelation, then they'll speak up. But it's not uncommon to go a whole Quaker meeting with just complete silence, which might be a nice break from life, uh, but I'm not sure that anybody's really going to get edified um, through that. Taking a verse... Um, out of context. Listen, it's never, it's never wise to shape your views about anything on the basis of one scripture, when there are many other scriptures. For instance, people often uh, overlook Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 when it says when you come together, it's for the apostles' teaching, that's doctrine, for fellowship, we just talked about that, for the breaking of bread and for the prayers. Or what if we just built our, our doctrine on what church is supposed to look like based on Acts chapter 20 when Paul begins preaching, I think in the morning, and he gets so long-winded, he preaches all afternoon, all late afternoon, all early evening, all mid-evening, past midnight into the morning. In fact, a guy named Eutychus falls asleep, and he falls out of a deer stand, I mean, out of the third floor window. He literally falls asleep on this marathon sermon. So should we go to that verse and say, listen, if we want to do church faithful, hope you brought some food and some drink because we got about 14 more hours. <laughs> Did they do that? I've heard in a few places about that, but we're not, we're not going to do that because you would never come back. You know, you, you, what if you went to... Uh, you got to use other verses. You know, Second, 1 Timothy 4.13 says this, Until you come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That, that, that illuminates what we're to do, right? Or how about this majestic verse, 2 Timothy, Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. You've read this. It's such a powerful text. When Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God. And of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into vain myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, all I'm trying to say is, there's a lot of verses that tell us what gathered worship should look like, right? And to our peril, we dial in on one to the exclusion of the other, and I think that's kind of what was going on. I don't think, let me, let me, let me go a little deeper. I don't think Paul is giving them a prescription. I think he's describing what was happening. In other words, in verse 26, I don't think he's telling them, this is what you need to do. 
I think he's telling them what they are doing, and I don't think they're being so flattering. He's being so flattering about it. Because people can come to this person and say, listen, here's the deal. If you really want to have a spirit-filled service, you need to have everyone bring a song, an interpretation, a tongue, and on and on and on. Then then that will be a spirit-filled meeting. Well, by the way, if everyone, like, can you imagine, um, you know, Helen, okay, it's your turn. We need your song. Come on, bring your song. Okay, we need your lesson. All right, bring your lesson. Okay, we need your revelation. Don't forget your tongue. And then finally your interpretation. Five things all through the church. Man, that would make that overnight service seem short to get through all that. Right? So I don't think Paul is given a prescription. I think he's given a description. All you guys, you keep on coming here, and everybody wants to get their gift in. And I think he's been a little sarcastic. Everybody has all five of these things. Probably more he would have said if he kept on talking to him. And the result is chaos. Everybody wants to do their thing and flex their gifts when I already told you that the body of Christ has different gifts, different people, right? Different strokes for different folks. And together we serve because we don't have the same gifts and they're for building others up. And in this chaotic environment, nobody gets built up. That being the case, he then, he then imposes order. We're not crazy about that word, but he does. On three groups of people who were a little bit out of order. Let's march through this really quickly. The first group of people that were getting out of order were tongues speakers. He says, and I just summarized Well, let me read verse 27. He says, let two or three, if if any speak in a tongue, let there be how many? Two or three at most. So he's he's imposing some limitation, right? No more than two or three in a service, right? And he goes on to give them some more limitations when he says, and each in turn. So only one at a time, and no more than two or three. And then he goes on to say, And let someone interpret. But, verse 28, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So basically he says, listen, if if someone does break out in tongues, and it it can happen, there should be what? An interpreter. And if there's no interpreter, what? Zip. Zip your soup cooler, okay? Keep it to yourself. These verses work together, by the way, don't they? Somebody, I can't remember which commentator said, listen, if God is genuinely giving somebody a, a, a tongue, that will be validated by get, genuinely giving somebody interpretation. So if there's no interpretation, then whatever that tongue is, it, it's not from God for the people. Now, we did, talk about real, we did talk about this idea of a private prayer language. You remember that? And I think the text answers, if, if someone feels that they have that, then the way they use that is in a way that does not call attention to themselves in gathered worship. Does that make sense? Unlike some of these YouTube videos where some, you know, musician will start saying, you know, speaking in tongues, that's not of God because that, according to this text, right? So number one, he imposes some order on tongue. He doesn't quash tongue speaking. Let's be really careful. I'm just giving you the text right here, okay? Number two, he wants to impose order on people speaking prophetically. Verses 29 through 33a. Let two or three prophets speak, and I would join in the bulk of commentators, including charismatic commentators, who would say he's probably not talking about the big P prophetic office, rather just everyday 
Joe and Janet within the body of Christ prophesying. Because that's actually what he's encouraged them to do, right? We've seen all through these chapters, he encourages people to prophesy in some capacity. But again, he imposes some order, does he not? How many prophets can speak? Two or three. And then what should happen after that? Let the others weigh what is said. And according to the next verse, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be, which is the second time he's told somebody to be silent, right? He says, let the first be silent. In other words, uh, don't just kind of talk over each other with your prophecies like it's a large family dinner, okay? Or an argument between a couple. Not that this ever happened in my house or your house, but you know what I'm talking about. Just talking over each other. He says, don't do that. Now, does that happen? Yes, it does, this, this gift. Um, I remember, this is like two or three years into the life of the church. Again, 10-year anniversary, Easter, can't wait for that. Um, and at the end of uh, my sermon, uh, end of our second worship set, a lady came up, and she said she thought she may, I love the way she said it, she may have something that could, that was for somebody in the church. You know who. And, and she gave it to me. And I weighed it out, and I thought, man, I think the church needs to hear this. So I can't remember if it was the last song or between uh, the final song. Somewhere in there, uh, I gave her the floor, and I asked her to, to give what the Lord laid on her heart. And she described, in short, a guy who looked the part, like looked like a Christian, that looked like it a long time, but whose heart was actually far from God. She gave it. It was, seemed quite powerful, frankly, in the moment, but really didn't think about it that much. We finished the service, and then a guy calls me this, that afternoon who was our treasurer at that time, wonderful man, solid guy. He said, he said I got to tell you, Mike, I came like I come every Sunday, enjoyed the word, took notes, sang the songs. But when she gave that word, it was like tunnel vision from her to me. And that was for me. Pastor Mike, I got saved today. I got saved. So it does happen, okay? So as we impose order, we don't want to get rid of it. We just want to do it God's way. Does that make sense? Now, I would add, before we get to the third group, which is going to be the one that's going to be a lot of fun to cover, um, both tongues and prophecy are not ecstatic utterances uh, are actions that lift people up into some alternative state of euphoria, right? Their eyes roll back, they're on autopilot, and they just can't stop themselves. It's like water coming out of a broken fa faucet. No, it's not like that, because according to this, it can be limited. Two or three, right? Keep silent, he can say to you. And even in, later in this passage says, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the spirit of the prophets. You can control your spirit. But that brings us to group number three, women. Or likely wives. And this, as I said, probably about 17 times already where it gets really fun. Can I just uh, remind you that at the top of my Bible it says 1 Corinthians. It doesn't say 1 Hanafi, okay? Um, Paul wrote this, right? And we know the ultimate author was God. So if you want to email somebody, could you just email him? No, seriously, I'm willing to talk to you as you wrestle with these things for sure. But but some people come to these verses and they say, Paul was so misogynistic. Paul was so anti-women. 
And in fact, a lot of people, this is how they deal with that. They say, these verses were just an insertion. They weren't really there. The problem is they even concede this. Well, every manuscript actually does show these verses, but we just think it was inserted somewhere along the way. Like, yeah, that's very convenient, isn't it? But you do have to ask yourself, what in the world's going on? Paul, did you get hit in the head since chapter 11? Did you get stricken with sudden Alzheimer's since chapter 11? Because in chapter 11, you made it clear that a woman could prophesy publicly. Remember that? A woman could pray publicly. And here you're saying she needs to keep silent. So what's going on? Well, as a believer, this is where we start. We believe that all Scripture is pneumatos, breathe, spirit breathe, right? And therefore, any apparent contradictions are just that, apparent contradictions, but not real. Now, this is how some people try to resolve the tension. Some go too far, giving more authority to man-centered tradition. And by man-centered, I don't mean generically, I mean gender-wise, man-centered tradition more than the revelation of Scripture. And, and, and basically, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, a little facetious, let's say. Basically, the idea is, you know, what a woman can do, she can come here and smile, and she can wipe a baby's butt. I've had people even put, you know, you have a, a, a woman. Was I out of order to have Tina read the Scripture today, by the way? Or a woman to teach a Saturday seminar or lead in a worship set or anything like that? <laughs> no, again, Paul... He says women can pray and prophesy. And we're going to close, and I'm going to tell you all the things uh, that, a church, that, that, that a woman can do in the confines of her family of God, the local church, even on the Lord's Day. But I want to close that side of it by saying, at the same time, let's not devalue wiping a baby's butt. Was it a sacred act when Mary did it? It's a sacred act when it happens there, anywhere with a mother, a father, whoever. Now, on the other side, the other ditch to avoid is this. Some don't go far enough. They give more authority to fallen contemporary culture than Scripture. Come on, this is so outdated. You couldn't actually believe that stuff, could you? But is not Paul making the point that this is a universal thing? There's a universal principle? He says, as in all the churches, did you see that? As in all the churches? And we're going to come to that abiding principle in a moment. But need to ask the question, what was happening in, in, in Corinth for him to have to say the women ought to keep silent? That's a good question to ask, right? What was happening there? Y'all with me? I know this is deep and dense and all that, but we can either avoid this stuff or we can dive into it, right? What was happening there for Paul to have to write these words to the women at Corinth? What was happening? A situation by the way, that Paul learned about, I don't think this is insignificant, from a woman, from Chloe. Chloe's the one who let him in on what was going on. Thank you, Chloe. <laughs> now, I'm not, what a snitch. Um, I am not going to pretend to be able to recreate this situation perfectly. I can't. Um, there is going to be a degree of speculation, Okay. I'm going to give you a few possibilities, why I think they're silly, give you my take, which is a lot of people's take, and then get back to the abiding principle. Some people say, oh, women were told to be quiet because women were generally not as educated as men. You know, they could sound dumb. 
And that's just dumb. First of all, men were not very educated as well. <laughs> Wasn't that the charge against the Christians at Corinth when Paul says, he even, he conceives that. He says, yeah, God chose not many wise. Hmm, that's you. God chose some foolish. That's you. And in fact, wasn't that the charge against the apostles in the book of Acts? How could these men be teaching this kind of stuff, seeing they're unlearned men? What is more, we've already seen Paul not only allows, but, but encourages them to prophesy, both men and women. And what's even more, going back to Chloe, sorry, is she was clearly a woman of status and education. So that's just dumb, dumb take on it. The other big take is women were told to be quiet because they were causing the disturbance, shouting across the aisle. And that's based on the idea, and, and they probably did seat this way, perhaps they did, that they would seat in the early Christian church almost like they did in the ancient Jewish synagogue. Men on one side, women on the other. Like Amish churches today. And maybe what was happening is women were shouting across the aisle to their wife. Like, hey, don't forget this. Hey, you should say this, right? And it was just becoming just kind of a nuisance. And Paul is saying, chill out. Just can you guys hash it out at home? There may be some wisdom to that, but I don't think that's what he's saying. Context is king, right? So remember, in the immediate context, Paul is addressing prophesying, both men and women who, who maybe would prophesy, right? And he's just telling them that if and when you prophesy, those prophecies ought to be, verse 29, weighed out. So it seems, and we're trying to recreate the scenario, that when prophecies were being weighed out, by who do you think particularly would weigh out the prophecies? The, the elders? That some of the women were jumping in, interjecting, and even challenging the rulings publicly. And Stephen Um, wonderful commentary on 1 Corinthians, uh, he, he, he points out that in the broader cultural context of that day, in which a woman couldn't even speak to a man that she was not married to publicly so she could speak to one man outside of like her dad and grandpa and family like that. And just like in Hamtramck in parts today, right? Just like in parts of Dearborn today, under that broader cultural context for a woman to do that would have brought shame on her husband, verse 35, who is her head, chapter 11, verse 4, and also would have been in violation of God's order of leadership. Does that make sense? See, listen, keep silent three times. For tongue speakers, there's a time to talk and there's a time not to talk. For people who have a prophetic word, there's a time to talk and there's a time not to talk according to the order that he lays out. And he's telling the women there, there is a time to talk and there's a time not. Now, he doesn't want them to be in, just in the dark. He actually tells them to go home and ask their husbands in an appropriate context to, to further flesh out some of maybe the prophecies that have been weighed. But I think what's very significant, and I'm really trying to rush now, is Paul's appeal to the law in verse 34. When he says, the women should keep silent in churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Now, what's he referring to when he says, as the law also says? What do you think? 
I don't want to drown up here on this topic. So you got to come, come at me. The, the law would be the Old Testament. So some of you, let, let's, just, let's just simplify this. Some of you, I think you have the ESV study Bible, and I think it can be really helpful. I use it for some of my sermons. Um, likely referring to the Genesis 2 mandate. You remember that? Where we read in Genesis chapter 2, God made Eve from and for who? Adam. That's likely what he's referring to and the pattern of male headship in the home and in the family of God. When was that principle and pattern laid? After the fall or post-fall? Which just said the same thing. Uh, post-fall or pre-fall? When? Pre-fall. Because sometimes people say, well, this is a matter of the fall. No, it's actually not. This pre-fall creation, the principle and pattern of male headship in the home and in the church continues today. And I have to tell you, it is under siege. You know what it is, right? It's under siege from without, but it's also under siege from within. I don't know if you've ever heard the expression masculinity with the word toxic prefix in front of it. Have you ever, ever heard that? Now, is there such a thing as toxic masculinity? Yes or no? Duh. Yeah, just read the Bible. Read the book of Judges and see how Jephthah was a punk with his daughter and offered as a sacrifice, right? Like the whole, the Bible tells you about such a thing. But, and I, I want to say this, I want to say this graciously. So I want to be priestly. But I also want to be prophetic and be willing to say it. You're either naive or you're ignorant or you're being played, if you don't think that the end game goal of flippantly throwing around the expression, frequently throwing around the expression, toxic masculinity is nothing, is but a tool to destroy biblical masculinity and biblical manhood and to neuter our boys. And I would add this. Let's talk about feminism. And now, it all depends how you define it, Right? Beautiful. <laughs> Defined a certain way. And in its origins, right? Like something called suffrage, like women can vote just like guys can. Beautiful. But we're likewise naive. We're likewise ignorant. We're likewise getting played. If we don't think that, that the way that concept is so often thrown around is a tool to actually destroy biblical femininity, and there's such a thing and biblical gender roles. And there is such a thing in biblical gender distinctions. There is such a thing. And to destroy, I would say, little girls and little boys in their mother's womb. Women have been oppressed and underappreciated. And guess what? Many times in many places, they what? They still are. But the answer for that is Scripture. And the glorious truth of Imago Dei, equal in value, equal in honor, equal in dignity. And the truth is, where Christianity spreads, people's valuation and estimation of women actually rises, not falls. Now, you would never know that from the talking heads of culture, would you? 
who love to give the examples, and there are, of within the church of women being unappreciated and oppressed. And guess what? People do fail. Churches do fail. Did you ever fail before? We fall. We're sinners. But, but I can prove the point like that, that wherever Christianity becomes prevalent, the value and treatment of women is elevated. And I can do it, like I said, I can do it in a second. I want you to think of some uh, predominantly Islamic country. And I'm not throwing shade, I'm just making a comparison. And I want you to think about what you know about how women are treated there and how women are treated in, in cultures and contexts in which there has been Christianity, whether it's been the real robust Christianity or even just kind of the non-salvific, more moralistic, right, flavor of nominal Christianity. Tell me, where have women been valued more? History does not lie. Now, speaking of salvation, men and women, women and men, are both full heirs of Christ, right? That's glorious. So not, not just a Mago Day same footing, but in conversion, right? Full heirs of Christ, equal participants in the new covenant. Galatians 3.20 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor female, slave or free, male or female, but Christ is all and in all. Did I say that somewhat right? Now, David Strain posits that some of the women in Corinth may have overreacted to their newfound and in, in, in right and in righteous and good liberty and freedom in Christ. Praise God, we're no longer second-class citizens. Praise God, we're joint heirs with Christ, to which every blood-washed believer would say, amen, right? Gloriously true. But he says they may have taken that truth and twisted it into now to down, to disregard, or at least low-key, low-grade, downplay God's order for male headship in the home and in the church. He said this, the eradication of sinful downgrading of women does not mean the eradication of God's divine gender design. Stephen Ahm said Christians need to submit themselves to the full counsel of God. There will be times when the cultural setting and personal presuppositions will cause an individual to be challenged by the Bible, right? You ever read the Bible and say, I can't believe that's in there. Anybody here? The question is, will we allow the Bible to challenge our built-in assumptions? Will we allow the Bible to say what it says? Will we wrestle with what it actually says, or have we predetermined what it is and is not allowed to say? The Bible has to be able to contradict the reader. And God has to be able to contradict our views. If he can't do that, we're not in a real relationship with him. Submission to the text should be the pursuit rather than causing the text to be submitted to the modern world. So what is the abiding principle he's getting at here? All that. Let's say this. God's divine gender design. And I'm going I'm to be succinct here, but I'm going to give it to you that in the home, the husband, in, the local, in your physical nuclear family, whatever that, that looks like, the husband is the head, right? That's what it says in chapter 11, verse 4. It says in Ephesians 5, husbands are to sacrificially love their wives and wives are to sweetly submit to the husbands. And we all need grace and forgiveness and all that. Good people have variants of fleshing out what that looks like 
in its particulars, but we must not refrain from each teaching that, right? And we do have to wrestle with texts like Proverbs 31, which says a woman buys and sells. She had a business. She was a businesswoman. Lydia was a businesswoman, right? But we also have texts like Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 13 and 14. He says, besides that, they either widow wives, sometimes they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they should not say. So, he says, I would have younger widows to marry, to bear children, to manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Now, that was scripture, right? And we need to wrestle with what that looks like. But the husband is the head of the home. And in the church, qualified and called males serve as elders. The head of the family of God would be elders. And I, I don't need much scripture for that. You need no Greek. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, the husband of one wife. Titus 3.6, the husband of one wife. How about this? 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And he goes to the creation narrative just like he did here. Now, again, context is king. Does that mean a woman can't be a professor? Some people have, like, abused the text to say that because there would be men and women in the class. No. Does that mean a woman can't be a politician because she would rule over some people in, 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 in a way of speaking? No. That's, that's not what it's saying. That's a silly assertion. Remember, what's king? Context. The context is the local church, right? The context is eldership. Women, according to Scripture, cannot serve as elders. A woman cannot serve as a pastor. Um, a church that has a female pastor, I don't know how to put this any differently, is in disobedience to Scripture. In fact, I would go to say there is no such thing as a female pastor. People say, would you, would you, you know, do a, a, a same-sex wedding. It's impossible. There is no such thing. Because God's the one who ordained that, right? Somebody says, to each his own. I say, to each his own. He's the one who set things up. So when it comes to the gathering of the Lord's Day, what that means for us is preaching is reserved for elders or those who could potentially serve sometime in the future as elders. But man, oh man, oh man, oh man, women can and ought do tons in the gathering. In fact, women can do everything outside of that. And that's just because of what God tells us in his sacred word. Women lead music, which is a form of prophesying, read, lead in scripture, lead in prayer, and testimonies. And yes, I, as I gave you an example, did I not, of prophetic words. They can teach Saturday seminars as they do here. They can lead prayer meetings and prayer times as they do counseling, they can serve as deacons as they have here, and other leadership positions that the elders deem healthy, helpful for the church, like prayer influence leader. And men, I would say, do well to get the input from their wives. Elders, we seek the input of our wives. Any man who's worth his salt leading anything really relies on his wife's intuition. But at the end of the day, the scripture is clear. The husband is the head of the home, the family, and Elders, male elders are the head of the family of God. And they were rejecting the principle of order here in all of its forms. Now I'm going to wrap up really quick this, this final principle, the principle of authority. I've really kind of already hit it, but let me hit it a little bit more. As a church, we must reflect the authority of God in our sermons. So what I want to invite you to do is you, you can check me down. I mean, 
If, I'm, if, I, if I have a blind spot, I'm not seeing something, help me to see it. Love me enough to help me see that, right? But let me love you enough to help you see that too, right? Maybe I don't have it at all, but I, I know I've, I can't tell you. <laughs> it's embarrassing how much time I even spent on this text right here because it's, you know, such a fragile one. But be in Acts 17, 11, church. Search the scripture to see if these things be so. Our children's ministry better be biblical. Our songs better be biblical. Our fellowship and all the rest. And I think how a church and how a person responds to what I just covered reflects whether or not they really want to be under the authority of God. Because I didn't really give you opinion. Some at Corinth thought that they knew better than Paul. Maybe you think you know better than God. This is what he says in verse 36. Or was it from you the word of God came? In other words, did you write scripture? Because you're acting like it. You got some special insight, huh? And then verse 37. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual and man, they did. They were the cat's meow and the bee's knees. But he's saying if you really are a prophet, if you really are spiritual, you would acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. In other words, I didn't pull this out of my armpit. This is scripture. This is a command from the Lord. And today, you ought to read C.S. Lewis. He talks about people suffering from chronological snobbery. In other words, we have this idea that we, in our modern times, know so much better than people did in the past. They were just ignorant dummies bound and shackled by superstition and closed-mindedness. And that mindset is sabotaging many a confessing Christian and many a church that once held to the book. Thankfully, Matthew 16, 18 says, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you remember that? So we got nothing to fear. That's not, don't be a jerk for Jesus. You know, like Facebook, women shouldn't be pastors or whatever. I I meet somebody, she says he's a pastor. I say, oh, no, you're not. No, you don't roll like that. We're just speaking clearly within the household of faith right now, right? That's what we're doing. And we got nothing to fear. Don't walk around fear. Don't walk around fearful and angry and frenetic and all this. Now, actually, no, let me correct that. Walk around in fear. The fear of the Lord. Walk around in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Verse 38. Paul writes, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. I don't think Paul, listen to me, and, and this, is, this probably is a record, okay? And I'm shamefully raising my hand saying this probably is the record. It's the longest sermon ever in a decade here. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, is there an award for that? I can't imagine what that would be, a Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I don't think Paul is all concerned that they're snubbing his authority. I don't think he was like that. I don't even think Paul's concerned that sometimes the worship services get out of whack. Here's what I think Paul's concerned about, and this is what I'd be concerned about for you. That a refusal to submit to the authority of God might be a reflection of not actually knowing God. Strain put it this way. A persistent and obstinate refusal to submit to Scripture means more than a chaotic Sunday at Corinth at church. 
but a crushing declaration on judgment day when Jesus will not acknowledge you. He will say, depart from me. Get away from me. I never knew you. That's so sad. That's really sad. That's sad. When while you had breath in your lungs, Jesus was saying nothing but come to me. Come to me, all that are late, weary, and heavy late, and I will give you rest. Come to me. That's what he says. That's what he says. Every heartbeat of your life, he says, come to me. And if you have never come to him, I want to remind you of the gospel that we're going to dive in as we kick off our Easter series, 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says, I delivered to you that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he rose again, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to Scripture. That's the authority of God's Word. And on the authority of another saying from this book, I tell you that if you would confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, guess what would happen to you? You'd be part of that eternal live stream, worshiping the slain lamb standing. So come to him, come to him, come to him. Let's exalt God with proper worship. If the music team would come, may have forgotten how to get up here. It's been so long, but you come right this way, and there you go, there you go.